Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, a show designed to help you win at work, love, and life. And we know you have what it takes to reach your full potential. And that's why every week we share with you interviews and strategies to help you develop the right social skills and mindsets to succeed. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Welcome back to our end of the year show. This episode wraps up 2020 here at the Art of Charm podcast, and what a year it has been. It certainly turned out quite a bit differently than what we had expected. But even with the pandemic and everything else that is going on, we did manage to have some wonderful guests on the show this year. And we thought a great way to end the year would be to collect a few for this year's highlights. Now, the first one is Adam Grant. Adam's a returning guest on our show and the author of the books Give and Take, Think Again, and Originals. We had so much fun with Adam that it turned into a double episode, which we aired in April. If you want to listen to the full-length episodes, they're called The Art of Overcoming Procrastination with Adam Grant and How to Give Without Getting Taken Advantage of with Adam Grant. In the following clip, we talk with Adam about how a subtle mindset shift allows you to speak up for yourself, how to advance your career even when you tend to be very humble, and how it's important to understand that people value things differently. A lot of us, in, especially early on in our career, are looking for mentors. So we tend to look at people who are above us in the organizational structure we're like, okay, I want to be mentored by this person. I look up to this person. And we don't spend enough time building allies with our team members. And certainly identifying matchers and building alliances with them, if you tend to fall on the giver side of the spectrum, it sounds like they're the ones who are going to be able to call the balls and strikes. And when that performance review comes around, actually give the truth to management when they're looking at who needs to move ahead and, and who maybe is taking too much of the credit. That tracks for me. And I think one thing that requires of a lot of givers is to stop judging matchers. I've had this reaction myself, and I know I'm not alone. When, you know, when somebody, I actually, I had this happen with a colleague of mine where I asked him for some feedback on a project I was working on. And he came back to me a couple days later with exceptionally thorough and helpful feedback. And then said, here's the project I've been working on. You owe me feedback in three days. (laughs) <laughs> I was so offended by that because I all of a sudden I felt like he didn't care about me. This was just a transaction. And, you know, now I, I had to repay my debt. It kind of undermined the relationship. I, I've changed my stance on that over time. I realized, you know what? The fact that this guy holds other people accountable for doing their share is exactly what givers need. And so, you know, instead of this, having this knee-jerk reaction of, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you so transactional? You know, it should be no strings attached. To be able to say, you know what, there's a time and a place for, for people to keep score. Maybe you don't want to be that person in every interaction or in most of your relationships. But, you know, knowing that there's, there's value in having those people around you, to me, that was a little bit eye-opening. Yeah, I certainly agree that having matchers around you and involved in your career is a fantastic way if you skew towards a giver who is humble and can't really speak up your own value for them to help advocate on your behalf. Yeah, and that I guess that goes to the other the other point which is you don't have to just think about it as advocating for yourself. I've taught negotiations for years and the evidence is overwhelming that for women, 
oftentimes there's a backlash when they're assertive in negotiations. And they're well aware of this. And so the, res- the natural response is often to be modest and humble and caring and communal and ask for less. And of course, that puts them at a huge disadvantage. And what the, the evidence says here is that if women are negotiating on behalf of others, if it's a colleague or a direct report or a mentee, uh, that, that gender backlash and gap vanishes. And I think this applies to people who are givers, who are men too. You know, one of the things I've taught to, you know, to some of the more, especially the, the more agreeable givers that I've, I've had in class is to say, you know what? If you find yourself walking in to negotiate a salary or a promotion or even just to, to make sure that your boss is aware of your work and you shy away from, from asking or even just claiming the credit that's owed to you, then you need to think about who else you're representing. It may be that you're role modeling for people more junior who struggle with this and it's an opportunity to go and try it out and report back to them so that they can learn from your example. It may be in a negotiation context that you're showing your boss, you know what, I negotiate as part of my job and I'm going to try to approach this negotiation not only with generosity and concern for you, but also with high aspirations for my own goals, which is the way I'm going to represent you when I'm negotiating on your behalf as part of the company. I think that very often when, when people are extremely humble, they're thinking too narrowly about the credit or the ask as something selfish when in fact it may benefit other people or it may be something that actually in the future clearly benefits their employer. Once again, when it comes to a place where you're constantly in fear of being taken advantage of, you're always going to see that in other people, no matter what they're doing. And you're going to read things in that manner. Why I was mentioning earlier of it's so important to build your self-worth and reverse that. So you're looking for the, the good in everyone, but also at the same time, learning how people give value just because maybe you've gave a contact out, then you're looking for a contact that comes back. Well, perhaps the, a gift or a dinner or some time or like those, that reward, that value comes back in many different ways. Yeah. We were talking about this like love language. Exactly. And unfortunately, many of us in our communication style We expect to receive and return what we're giving to others. So as a giver, you could see yourself getting frustrated or feeling taken advantage of if you're looking at it as, well, I gave this person my time and now they're not giving me their time back immediately. Or I gave this person a referral and they're not giving me back a referral. But just because you gave someone that value doesn't mean that they're going to in turn give you that value back exactly the same way. A lot of people give value to others in different ways. And a five-minute favor for one person might actually be, you know, an hour favor if they're not skilled or competent at what you're asking them to do. So I think, you know, we put so much expectation on others. And I was talking to two of our uh, clients recently uh, at the end of the boot camp. We have dinner and they were both consultants, different fields and actually different locations. One was based in the UK and one was based in New York. And they noticed this dynamic at work that if they went into the start of the project and told the client essentially, hey, in working with you, I want to do everything I can to get you promoted. So they set the frame at the start that I'm working to advocate for you, even though you work at a different company, 
and I'm going to make sure that your boss knows how well you worked with me and I'm going to help advance your career. Well, lo and behold, they found out that at the end of their projects, they were getting high marks because they were interacting with matchers. So they were setting the norm at the very beginning saying, I'm going to advocate on your behalf. And since most of us fall in the matcher category, sure enough, you're going to find enough people in their matching and you're going to go, well, wait a second. If this person's giving me value by advocating for me, well, then I got to in turn do the same. I should be advocating for them. And they were able to advance in their career where that part of the performance review is so huge that the client speaks highly of you over delivering and the client is advocating on your behalf, not just your peers and your allies. And I think when you start to look at, okay, understanding your own behaviors, reading other people's behaviors, and ultimately starting to understand a little bit more of their core motivations, you can, as a giver, without having to be braggadocious, without having to be outside of your character, be a humble person and still get ahead. Yeah, I think this really speaks to a myth that I've seen over and over again on my research on on givers and takers, which is I think a lot of people see giving and and taking as opposite ends of one spectrum. Mm -hmm. And they are at a a fundamental level. When you go into an interaction, you know, asking what can you do for me is sort of the opposite of asking what can I do for you. But when you think about the motivations behind the two, they're actually independent. So there's a question of how much do you care about helping the other person you're interacting with? And then how much do you care about achieving your own goals? And when you measure those two separately, they're basically uncorrelated. So you can draw two by two. And, you know, the pure takers are high in concern for themselves and low in concern for others. And then you have some people who are, are low in concern for themselves and others. I, I've never known what to do with that. They're just, I guess, apathetic. They just, they don't care. <laughs> I guess that's depression. You have two kinds of givers. You have, you know, with both categories of givers, you have high concern for others. But... Some of them are, are low in concern for self, and those are the really selfless givers who end up being too humble, too nice, too self-sacrificing, and, and ultimately are more likely to burn out and get burned and underperform. And then on the flip side, you have the successful givers who say, look, you know, I'm not trying to be a matcher, right? I don't want something back from each, each person that I help. What I want to do is I want to help as many people as I can, but be mindful of the personal cost of that and make sure that I don't overextend myself. And so I'll, you know, I'll help whenever it benefits other people a lot and, you know, make sure it doesn't cost me too much. And I think that that, for a lot of people that I've, I've had a chance to work with, that's been a useful reframe to say, look, you know, giving to others doesn't mean you're not ambitious. It doesn't mean you don't engage in self-care as well. And in fact, if, you know, if you don't prioritize your own goals and, and objectives along with other people's, at some point, your risk of burnout goes up. And you end up in a weaker position to be able to support other people. Next up is a clip from our episode with Dr. Judy Ho on how to stop self-sabotage, which was actually our first interview of this year. Yes, Dr. Judy Ho is a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist and author. In our interview with her, we talked about why we self-sabotage in our career and dating, what everyone is getting wrong about self-sabotage, how to strengthen your willpower, and a lot of other key psychological concepts. And in the following clip from the interview, you'll hear her talk about behavioral change and how to create both motivation and discipline. 
You love your acronyms. So moving on to step three, we are reconfiguring ABC chains. So what are ABC chains first and how do we reconfigure them? So ABCs are a different type of ABCs. This is behavioral management ABC. So A stands for antecedent. This is any kind of thing that happens before the behavior. So any kind of triggers. We've been focusing a lot on thoughts, but they could be other things. They could be other people. They could be certain memories. They could be a particular situation or surrounding and really understanding that there's so many different types of things that we should be looking for that lead us down a behavioral chain because the next thing that comes is the actual behavior. So that's the behavior you're trying to change. You know, whatever behavior that is getting in the way of you reaching your goals, whatever that self-sabotaging behavior is, we want to know all of the things that can lead to it and their consequence. And people sometimes don't realize that the consequences are not necessarily what you think they are. Sometimes people think, well, duh, like, of course I don't want bad things to happen to me. But yes, there's also negative reinforcement, this idea of an avoidance of something uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And my classic example, of course, is, you know, thinking about going to a party when you know you're not going to know anybody and it just gets so anxiety provoking that you finally then call the host and you make up some bogus excuse. Oh, I got stomach poisoning, whatever, food poisoning. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And then you hang up and oh, that flood of relief that now you don't have to go to this party. That is reinforcing for the next time. So the next time you have another big function, you know, you get to look forward to that relief when you do that self-sabotaging behavior. There you go. Yeah. The flaking. <laughs> the flaking. Everybody's got one of those stories, yeah. I feel like. Well, and, <laughs> and and these cues, exactly that, could be as simple as having your phone on the nightstand so it's easier to surf the internet than it is to go to the gym. And when you start to understand that, well, hey, my phone being next to me is the cue. What if I put my gym shoes next to me? That's the first thing I see. Oh, well, I'm a lot more ready to go to the gym with my shoes on than a phone in my hand. <laughs> So it's understanding the chain of events and and trying to go upstream of that bad behavior to really knock it out. I always tell people, give yourself a break. It takes three to four weeks to Mm -hmm. get that habit to form. So if it's hard in the first, you know, one or two weeks, it should be. Yeah, it's normal, right? We are are fighting against the way we've conditioned ourselves for months, years, some of us even decades. Yes. And Johnny talks about this as well. It's the idea of stopping a moving train and getting it moving in the opposite direction. The train doesn't come to a dead stop. The train has a lot of momentum in the wrong direction. So we got to slow it down. Mm -hmm. And then in order to get it to go in the opposite direction, it's got to get some momentum and pick up some steam. Right. So just like that, when we're talking about behavior change, we have to slow down the bad behaviors. Then we got to give some time for the new behaviors to pick up some momentum. But even with that, it doesn't take forever. And if you're patient and it starts to pick up its momentum, then it's something that you do. You look forward to, you're excited about, and you've done that. And that momentum, you can chain other good habits to. Mm-hmm. Oh, right? yeah. Once you start to realize, oh, if I'm moving in the right direction, all of a sudden I have the endorphins after the gym. Well, oh. I'm excited to make myself a healthy lunch. Right. Totally. But if I feel like crap because I didn't go to the gym, then I'm more excited about frying something up for lunch. Yeah. So it 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 can <laughs> be so chained true. together. Now, step four. Mental contrasting and implementation intentions. Okay, Uh, this is a mouthful. Hey, Art of Charm listeners. I'm excited to share a new podcast I've been absolutely binging. Winning is an everyday mindset, and Craig Robinson and John Calipari are here to help. On Ways to Win podcast, Craig and Coach Cal use their on-court wisdom to solve your off-court problems. Whether it's trouble at home or a workplace dilemma, the coaches will help you find a winning formula for success. You'll hear from prominent athletes, business leaders, and celebrities who reveal insights that made them into the leaders they are today. And don't miss President Obama sharing how he deals with pressure by projecting confidence, believing in your team, and taking criticism. 
Listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. MCII is actually the combination of two techniques. The first one is mental contrasting. Mm -hmm. Now, visualization is obviously a really powerful tool. We love visualization. I'm a very visual learner. But if you're just visualizing your dreams, but not thinking about the specific obstacles that might get in the way, then that visualization is empty. Sometimes I'll have clients come to me and they'll say, I've been doing vision boarding for years. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the year, I'm always so depressed. And I'm like, bring me one of your vision boards. I want to see what's on this thing. And so I remember one of my recent clients came with this vision board and it was like, you know, like a cutout picture of a $5 million home, picture of like some perfect bride and groom in a magazine. And it was like, I didn't have any of these things. It's like, okay, but how were you going to get to the $5 million house in 10 months? And how were you going to get to that wedding in 10 months? Did you have the specific steps in between? Did you think about the obstacles that might be getting in the way? And that's the mental contrasting. So not only do you picture the big rosy thing that you want at the end of the rainbow, but you're also picturing, and what is it in thy current life right now that's sort of holding me back or stopping me from moving on to the next step up that ladder? And once you do that, of course, then you can start to implement things that can really help you to deal with those obstacles, to actually address the specific obstacles rather than just this big dream that you're supposed to get to later. There's a lot of research that shows that when people give themselves a big lofty goal, but they don't think about the in-between steps, they basically don't reach it. But if you work at the specific in-between steps, that's how you get to the big goals. And so I think it's kind of a take on that. So that's the mental contrasting portion. It creates motivation. Mm -hmm. The mental contrasting creates motivation. It gets you pumped up for that event. It really gets you excited and it makes the picture much more vivid, right? Instead of just this big pie in the sky, it now becomes something that you can actually visualize in front of you, something that you can actually do today, something that you can move towards in this moment. And these implementation intentions. 
implementation intentions, again, a mouthful to say something really simple, which is then to create a series of if-thens from your mental contrasting exercise. So now that you know what the obstacles are, create the if-thens related to each of those obstacles. If you've identified an obstacle, for example, you're trying to get to a healthier pattern of eating and, okay, you've realized that, okay, something that's getting in the way is every night I come home from work, I'm I'm spent. I just start picking up whatever's in my pantry. And there's oftentimes lots of really bad things in my pantry. So the if then is really kind of to create the setup so that when you get to that triggering moment, you already have a prescription plan. It's like following a recipe. So if I come home and I'm tempted to reach for the chips, then what? Then what are you going to do? And the art of replacement behavior is just to actually find a behavior that can replace the bad one as opposed to something you can do in conjunction with a bad behavior. So sometimes people will say, well, then I'll just watch Netflix. I'm like, no, but that's when most people eat bad snacks and then forget because they're so mindless about it. They're watching this TV show and all of a sudden the whole bag of chips is gone. So it's really about something that would actually get in the way of the bad snacking. So what would that be? You know, it has to be something that is going to keep you occupied in a way that you can't be snacking at the same time. I know for myself, when it comes to nutrition, it's empty fridge equals Postmates. And <laughs> so for me, it was like, okay, I have to work backwards from that. Okay, this is simple. Sunday, I'll throw something on Netflix in the background and I will meal prep and I will buy the ingredients on Saturday so that I have Sunday all laid out and now my meals are mapped. And when you start to look at your life and, and meal prep is a, a classic example, when you start to look at your life in all these different areas of like, okay, what are the potential roadblocks? What have I done in the past that's going to lead me astray? Okay, now let's start thinking about building in the if-thens. If this happens, well, what are my options? And I've been doing a lot of work with some one-on-one -on -one clients, and we're talking a lot about six-month goals, and it's so easy to articulate the goal, and I think everyone gets so fired up about that. And then I go, okay, well, what are the potential roadblocks? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that – yes, guess what? This is why this has been your goal for the last 12 months, because you have not thought about the roadblocks and thought about what you're going to do when those arise. Yes. And it's so important to do it in advance. Sometimes people will say, okay, if then simple enough. So then when that happens, I'll make the if then in my head. No, because at that point, the triggering thoughts are already there. All those antecedents that lead you down that self-sabotaging track are in place and happening. It's too hard then to make your if thens. You got to make them in advance. You got to do the mental contrasting at a time when generally it's sort of like your mindful time. You know, maybe it's a morning meditation that you're doing, or maybe you just have like 20 minutes in the morning to do this before all the triggers happen. So then when they happen, you literally open up the page or you open up the phone where the notes app is, where all of this is written, and then you just do what it says. So you have to cut out that hard work for yourself because at that point, you're spent. You're you have decision fatigue. You know, yeah. the motivation's mm -hmm. already been worn. There is no willpower left at 11 p.m. at night when no. you're trying to change your uh, healthy, uh, your habits to healthy eating. The self-reflection, being able to talk to people about it, and what we've been trying to do with the show is really just paint the picture that it's okay. Everyone is going through this. Share this with your friends. Share this with the people who care about you. They can help reinforce the good behaviors. Even talking about accountability, just sharing your goals with others allows you to be held a little bit more accountable than just keeping all of these thoughts in your head. And a lot of us think, oh, I can just, I can do that battle every day. And we're draining our willpower. We're not tapping into the deeper motivations, which we're going to talk about here and building out our blueprint for success. Yes. This next clip is from our Toolbox episode this November, titled The Myth About Friendship in Three Ways to Make a Deeper Connection. 
This is a fun one for us because it's one of the most important topics that we teach here at the Order Charm. In this clip, we're talking with our coach, Michael Harold about some powerful and easy ways to remember principles that you can use in any situation to create that deeper connection with somebody. So it's important that we realize the art in what we're talking about here and in deepening the connections around us. If you come at this saying, hey, what are these perfect questions? AJ, just give me that list of 36 questions and I'm done. Bang, I'm out. I got what I need from this podcast. Well, what you're actually missing out on is the deepening of the connection. You'll end up stuck in that surface level formation of relationships that we hear time and time again from the clients that work with us. And that's frustrating because we're not coming in with the curiosity that we need to spark the deeper connection. If it's boring small talk, if it's who, what, where, when type questions and you're just hanging on to that information, well, the other person isn't going to feel inspired to share anything else. They're not going to feel inspired to move to medium disclosure. And of course, they're not going to remember that from the thousands of other small talk conversations they've had throughout their life. And when we ask deeper questions, what we're in turn doing is we're actually working on the second point, the second most important thing, and that's finding the why. We need to really start to understand the why people are behaving the way they are, why they're sharing what they're sharing with us, and our own why. So we can bring that into the conversation. And when we're able to share our why and get a greater understanding of the other person's why behind their behaviors, their actions, their beliefs, their experiences, well, that enriches the relationship. But of course, we're not used to that level of disclosure. It's a scary cave to enter to share our why, to talk about what's important to us. And in turn, we're not in tune with it, so we're not curiously looking for it in others. And to add to that, we started this conversation by discussing storytelling and storytelling uh, and implementation class. And this is the thing. If you have a program into your mind that all I need to do is be a better question asker and I'm going to make better connections, well, then you haven't done any work for to get comfortable with your own levels of risk and vulnerability. And this is the hidden gem. And think about it. I think this is why a lot of people get this idea of ask better questions for better connection in their head because they don't have to really do any work. The work that they're doing is low risk. Ask better questions. Put all the efforts on the other person. And there's this other line that I think that lends itself to this that sticks in everybody's heads, that everyone's favorite subjects is themselves. And if you could get them talking about themselves, then they'll, they'll end up doing all the work. That is true. But you have to create a safe place for them to want to begin to talk about themselves. Because if that has not been set up, they will remain closed. You're not going to get information out of them. And every time that you push to get more information, they're going to close that much more. Yeah. And here's the thing. Like most people, as we've discussed in the main reason why people don't make a connection, most people aren't even used to sharing about their, they're not used to being in that cave and, no. and you can't really push them in either. So. Here is a, a carrot that you can use to kind of treat them to stepping into the cave. And I, I just love this. I just love this technique. And so 
what I would do with this technique, that it's one of the things that we teach at the X Factor Accelerator and Core Confidence as well, is that you you look at the emotional, you actually ask about the emotional content of what's happening in that story. So for example, AJ might have traveled before, you know, the entire like zombie apocalypse that's happening right now. He might have happened to travel to Paris and then he comes back from Paris and I could ask him, well, what did you eat there? What was your schedule like? What was the street like? What was this? What was... And then he would give me those facts, right? We landed at 8.30 p.m. I had intercontinental breakfast. The hotel was this large. This was the price of lunch and so on. Or I could say, what was it like to be in Paris? Now I get H.A.'s view on this. Or he could tell me all the facts about being in the Louvre and seeing the Mona Lisa up on the wall. And I could say, well, you know, how long did you have to wait? How many people were there in the room? Or I could say, what was it like to see the Mona Lisa? What did you like most about Paris? And that questions like that, and it can be as simple as what did you like most? That it can be as simple as that. And what that now allows me to do is I can see the world through AJ's eyes. Because if the three of us, if we ever travel to Paris and we have exactly the same itinerary and we go exactly to the same restaurants, museums, hotels, and then people ask us in the usual way, what did you do? We would tell them exactly the same story. But if that person asks each one of us, what was it like to be in Paris? You get a different story. Because for me, it would be, I don't know, the art. For AJ, it's the it's the, the street vendors and the, the, the paintings and that they have there. And for Johnny, it's the music. And suddenly you get three people that did exactly the same thing but you get three different stories. And so once you train yourself to ask the other person that question that helps them look for the why they do certain things and why they like certain things and why they stayed in that hotel, that's when you get that light push towards disclosure and the other person gets used to sharing a little bit more of what's going on inside instead of just the outside. And... This is also a beautiful thing just for everyday questions. So I could ask, and we can actually do this here. I'm curious for your answers. I could ask you, what's your favorite movie? And then what, what would I get, AJ? Just, just the favorite movie. Fight Club. And Johnny? Over the Edge. All right. For me, it's Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. So now we don't really know. Well, now we can just ask the next question, right? What's your favorite food? How many siblings do you have? Or we could change that question around a little bit. And I ask you, Johnny or AJ, why is Fight Club your favorite movie? What do you like most about it? It's one of those movies that I feel like every time I watch it, I catch something else. And there's so many hidden layers to the movie that it's enjoyable again and again. Whereas I feel like most movies, you watch it once and you really don't even have to watch it again. But that one really stands out. And I feel like every time I'm on an Easter egg hunt, watching it, seeing different moments that I didn't catch the first time. And that's my point. Because for everyone listening right now, you're not going to talk about Fight Club anymore because you just learned 10 things about HA that you didn't know before. And, and that's where the conversation now goes. And the fact that it's this movie with Edward Norton and Brad Pitt that's irrelevant. Now it's like, whoa, look at that. This is what excites AJ. This is what he finds stimulating. And boom. And I just learned something about AJ that I didn't know before. How awesome is that? And we can repeat that with, with your favorite food, with your favorite 
spot to hang out with your favorite bar. Why? What do you like most about it? Here's another one for you, Michael. When you ask somebody what their favorite anything is, right? A great follow-up is what is the criteria that you used to get that answer? When you look at the criteria, so for instance, you were asking AJ, why, well, why was it that Fight Club was his favorite movie? We got a lot of information about AJ. Asking what is the criteria? For myself, To and the answer to that question was, it was what is the impact that the movie had. So for myself, Over the Edge had a large shift and impact in my life. Now it's it's a it's an underground movie. It's Matt Dillon, first movie. He was 14 years old. It was a, a movie that gained a cult following through the 90s, but it came out in in 1980. But its impact on me as a child was a com was was a shift in how I viewed myself and the world around me. Is that starting to sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, Star Wars. Yes, uh, that would have been exactly my answer as well. Well, so. I was referring to the medium disclosure ideas about myself. Yeah, that is what. Yeah, I mean, I want to be a, I want to be a Jedi. Um, right. You know, it's out there now. Medium to high, these are goals and ambitions. It's actually like high disclosure. Yeah, I want to be a Jedi. That's that's it. It's out there in the world now. Yeah, I, I mean, it frames the answer into a medium disclosure question. And you'll get me in a way that only allows you elaborate on the answer that you've already provided. So now you get to give it context. It's not as if I'm asking you to dig a new hole. Right? The hole's already been dug. So now I'm getting the information of why you've chosen, why it was important to you. So you're getting context to information that was willingly already shared. And this works both ways. In conversation, we can answer the why question when someone's giving us their boring small talk questions. Yes. We can answer that why. If someone asks you, what's your favorite food? Answer the why question. Don't just say, oh, it's Italian. Well, it's Italian because the last time I was on the Amalfi Coast, I had the most beautiful sweet shrimp pasta and the chef came to the table and explained all the local ingredients that went into making that dish. And it was so few ingredients, but so packed with flavor that I fell in love with Italian food. Beautiful. Many of us, when we go into conversations with networking or even in Zooms, we're just, let's get our point across, let's move on, let's move to the next thing. But we can add color, we can add dimension to our own answers by answering that why question as if it was posed to us. In our episode titled The Art of Mindfulness for Skeptics, we talk with Dan Harris, the author of 10% Happier and Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. In the interview, we talk about why we humans are just so bad at dealing with uncertainty, the difference between responding and reacting, and why both too much and too little stress can be problematic. I don't know if fidgety skeptics is a pejorative or he's talking directly to me, AJ. But in this following clip, we talk about the benefits of mindfulness and gratitude and some easy ways to practice them. For many people, meditation is that woo-woo, spiritual, hippy-dippy alternative 
lifestyle that I think scares a lot of people. And what we enjoyed about your book is you actually made it more approachable for those who are, as Johnny says, fidgety, analytical, who aren't steeped in Eastern philosophy and really open to that. How did your mind become open to that? It sounds like you're very similar to us in that way. Right. Science is really the short answer. I, um, but by the way, you know, I, no disrespect to the people who want to practice meditation in the traditional, um, uh, you know, more uh, smells and bells, uh, you know, incense and, and uh, all that stuff. I, I that, That's cool. I wasn't for me. It's still not so much for me. But what allowed me to really get over the hump is um, is the science. There's been a ton of science that strongly suggests that meditation can lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system, rewire key parts of your brain associated with stress and self-awareness and focus in this era of distraction. And that, you know, on the sort of uh, sort of psychological front, it's been shown to help with anxiety and depression, two things that I've suffered with since I was a little kid. It's been shown to help with relationships. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been shown to be good for kids. It, there's just a ton of evidence. Uh, it's still in its early stages, but it's really strong. The strongly suggests that there's a lot of benefits to meditation. And so that's what allowed me to do it. I think for a lot of people, the idea of meditation, what it is supposed to do sounds incredibly attractive to even the fidgety skeptics. And they want to participate. They want the benefits. But for whatever reason, there is some sort of, of roadblock of understanding it to a degree where you could just let it do its thing. I've been into self-development for 16, 17 years. We've been doing this company for 14. We have interviewed quite a few meditation people and, and guides and whatnot. And for whatever reason, in all that time, as much as I was interested in the benefits, nothing really spoke to me or reached out. Now, in reading your book, I kind of saw it as a marketing material for meditation, whereas it wasn't trying to sell me on, on the, the application or the practice itself, that if I'm holding the book, I already want the benefits. I'm already plugged in. I already want this to work. However, when you get the marketing material of something you already want, you just need to know it's, it's exactly what it needs to be. And there needs to be social proof in a testimonial that speaks to who you are, where you go, that's exactly, this is for me. Now I'm going to buy. And I found that in your book in one line. And the line for me that for whatever reason, put it into another space in my mind of how to approach it, or at least to allow myself to approach it was that it was a celebration in being. Now, I can't remember which person said that in a book. You're on the bus tour. It was a few stops in, and I believe it was a woman, and she, and she referred to it as a celebration of being. And, and in this time where so many things have been upended and upside down for a lot of people, and as you were mentioning about being in the 1% of having still a job, being safe, having something to do every day, for myself, yes, which is having appreciation and gratefulness for all those things. And the idea of just celebrate being 
just really appealed to me in that moment over the weekend where I was getting really ramped up. I've always been able to channel this energy into my hobbies, which is playing music, rehearsing with the boys, going out to see a show, uh, writing. Like, those are my... That's where I blow off steam, but those have been taken from me. Going out to a show, socializing, getting into a rehearsal room and banging out tunes. Those are the things that allow me to feel good about life and celebrate life. And I haven't been able to have those. And I had noticed that without those and being able to blow off steam in that manner, that it is slowly everything else, the anxiety, the nervousness, the uncertainty has slowly have been amping itself up. And I had found myself in that one quote, being able to go, all right, so the next meditation here is the 10 breaths. Let's just go ahead and do that. You want to celebrate being, don't you? Well, yeah. And that 10 breaths went to about 30. And I can tell you that everything that I needed to have happened in that moment did. And I will say that for every day since then, I have sat down to do 30, 40, 50 breaths. And it has changed my just and feeling of what is going on and being able to center and focus because I, I haven't been able to do that since all this has happened. So, well, thank you in that. It is always that one line or that one thing that hits where it's like, oh, I can accept this now, or this is what I need it to be. Thank you. Here's the funny thing is I have no memory of writing that line. <laughs> uh, Jeff Warren, who was my co-author on that book, you're, you're talking about the second book I wrote, which is called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And yes. Jeff Warren, who co-authored it with me, who's an amazing meditation teacher. I'm not actually a meditation teacher. I'm just like a, a journalist who writes about it and talks about it. Um, Jeff is a trained professional. And he came up with this meditation called 10 Good Breaths. If I recall, it doesn't mean like breathe in any special way. It's just sit there and feel the breath as it happens naturally coming in and going out. Can you do it for 10? And it sounds like you're doing tripling, quadrupling down. What is happening in your mind that is having this, the benefits that you're describing? For me in that moment, and as I've been doing this every day after waking up since then, was as a company, we have a lot of things going on. The podcast and what we're doing one right now is just one part of many different components to it. And in the past, I would see AJ on a regular basis working. We were together. We were always collaborating and doing stuff. I've been isolated in my apartment on Hollywood Boulevard, and I don't have fan. I live by myself. And the isolation, I think, with the uncertainty and always having my computer in front of me, which means, well, there's nothing else to do but work, so I might as well just keep working. And the work that I'm doing is uh, I'm on Twitter interacting with people and putting together. I go live every morning as, a, as an opportunity to, to chat with our listeners and, and also a sanity check for myself because I haven't had the opportunity to really connect with people being over here. And... All that has had taken its toll. It just seemed that every direction I looked was was uncertainty and chaos and and it just it and only perpetuated itself. And so on breathing and focusing on it, it just everything else sort of washed away for that time period. I was reminding myself and about being here, safe, plenty of things to work on. 
nothing's going to happen magically. We're just going to plug away and enjoy having what I do have in these moments. And it just allowed my, just everything to calm down. And certainly my thought process to quit racing, which was leading to getting panicky. So what I'm hearing, it's like a short circuit. The mind is always racing, planning, plotting, ruminating, just taking your attention south of the border, south of your neck, and putting it on your body and your breath can be a circuit breaker on this on this racing mind, this voice in your head. And so that is amazing and textbook. And then I would say it goes, there's, in this kind of meditation, which is a little bit different from what AJ is doing, AJ has a mantra that's a, that's known as Vedic meditation. It's kind of uh, usually taught in the Hindu school. The kind of meditation that I've uh, uh, the cult I've pulled you into is uh, is mindfulness meditation, which is derived from Buddhism, but is stripped of any sort of metaphysical claims or or um, you know, religious lingo. The first step is you calm the mind a little bit by pulling you out of your racing thoughts. The second step is, and this is my opinion, where things get really, really beneficial, even more beneficial, which is you, once you have that baseline of calm and concentration, you can start to investigate what's happening when you get distracted. Because of course, you'll sit, you'll try to feel your breath, and then your mind's going to go nuts and you start, you know, it's like, what was Casper the friendly ghost before he died? And blah, 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 just random thoughts. Uh, what's for lunch? When can I get a haircut? Blah, blah, blah. And the whole game in meditation is to notice when you become distracted and to start again and again and again. And it actually, distraction, many of us, we get distracted and we think, oh, well, we, I can't do this. I'm, I'm a failed meditator. But actually, the distraction is the money because when you see how wild and cacophonous and and how fast moving your mind is, you're seeing fundamentally what your life is actually about. You may think your life is about your friends, your work, whatever, your family, but your life is actually about what's happening in your mind at any given moment. And if you look at that, it's embarrassing. And it's really useful to see how embarrassing that is because then when you have the visibility, you are less likely to be owned by all of that noise. And that is mindfulness. It's the ability to see what's happening in your mind without being yanked around by it. And that just gets better. You get better and better and better at it. It's a skill just like any other skill. And to me, so the 10% happier thing, the 10% compounds annually. And uh, you can just, you know, I, I retain the capacity to be a massive schmuck. Don't get me wrong, but I'm much less of a schmuck than I used to be. And to wrap this up, the final episode is our best of the 2020 lineup is our toolbox episode back in March titled The Art of Charisma. This episode is a deep dive into the three components of charisma, and we talk about the techniques to instantly boost your charisma wherever you are. In this clip, Johnny and I talk about the importance of enthusiasm and how to create it, as well as how to bring positivity and optimism into situations, even if you aren't perfectly comfortable. The second component of our charisma is enthusiasm, actually delivering some positive emotion and energy and fun and excitement into 
the conversation. And this is called an emotional contagion. And the reason that enthusiasm is so important is because it is literally contagious. If you remember back to being in grade school, when your elementary school teacher would come into class all excited and over the top enthused and slowly but surely the classroom would start to light up with energy. Oh, are we playing the tennis ball game? Or, oh, are we going outside for recess? We pick up on this signal so clearly in other humans and we become drawn to it. It's magnetic. Well, this is where being high value and and working to be a positive person comes into play. Positive people are happy people are attractive people. It will always be that way. And I know the first, the minute I say that, Everyone's like, well, I know so-and-so and and they're not so, and, or I'm quite dour, but people seem to like me. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. There's always going to be exceptions to the rule. There's no need to split. (laughs) 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 There's no reason to split hairs, but as a general rule, enthusiasm, showing somebody that you're excited to be talking to them, showing somebody that you're, you're excited for the conversation that you're going to be having showing enthusiasm for where you are goes a long way. And let me go ahead and set this up. This is an easy one. Think about this. You're going to roll into any venue, a social engagement. The first thing that everyone is doing is looking for social norms that are irregularities. So meaning that that make you not safe for being there. That's first and foremost. So you're looking for, uh, People who are not smiling, who are angry, who are upset. Any sort of tension or pressure in the room is your first response. Second, after that, after you realize that you're safe and everything's okay and you're hearing the music, now your brain goes to look for people who are smiling, who are laughing, who are enjoying themselves. And you're going to be drawn to those people. Why? Because there is enthusiasm. They're enjoying themselves. And you want to enjoy yourself. So there's a natural magnetism there. A smile is the best thing that you can do for yourself to show that you're enjoying yourself in that moment. And I always say a smile is a window that goes directly to how you're feeling in the moment right there. And enthusiasm has optimism embedded in it. Yes. Right? People are drawn to happy, optimistic people. They're not drawn, as Johnny said, to pessimism. So being optimistic is a big part of being charismatic. It's not only a belief in yourself of like, hey, people do like me and people do gravitate towards me, but it's also just a belief that, hey, we can all have a great time and this is a great environment and looking for the positives in any environment you're in. We could all be there all night long judging the music, the temperature, the drinks, the people, every single factor that goes into going out or going to an event. But that is not going to help you become more charismatic. What's (laughs) going to allow you to harness that inner charisma to unlock it in yourself is actually bringing some optimism, bringing some positivity to that environment. Now, I know it's difficult to go out and maybe the music is not to your liking. Maybe the, the atmosphere is not to your liking. And I, as I've gotten older and and more rigid and, and and knowing what the things are that where I want to be and the things that I like, I still at times find myself where I have to go, where I'm not so thrilled, but I can either a 
get nothing out of this situation and complain about it and bitch about it and have a miserable time, or I can try to get something for my time for the evening. And there is a checklist of things that I'm going to have to do in order to switch over from somebody who's going to be pessimistic about the evening and, and look for everything wrong to somebody who's optimistic about the evening and looking for reasons that it's going to go right. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to have to put a smile on. And we're talking about Amy Cuddy's power pose yeah. of being able to have open body language to allow the atmosphere to fully hit me, put on a smile to show that I'm enjoying myself. And it's those things that slowly will start to turn the way I'm seeing everything and try to make a positive out of what was or can be easily a negative. And what you're talking about is a choice. Yes. Optimism is a choice. And in order to be optimistic, you have to start choosing to look for the right things, for the positives in any of those situations, which is why even when we talk about developing out your social skills, we're constantly talking about finding those small victories, finding those moments where you can be optimistic. You know what? The conversation lasted longer than the last few times I'd been out with a stranger next to me. You know what? I talked to more people than I had in nights previous. I stayed longer than I normally would because in the past I would have left when I felt a little awkward or anxious. Those are all simple ways for you to start making a choice, becoming optimistic. And as Johnny said, that nonverbal expression of optimism, that smile, beaming it towards people. And we get this a lot. You guys just smile all the time. You talk about smile all the time. Why is that? I don't feel like smiling all the time. Yes, I would love everyone to smile more, but it doesn't have to be all the time. But giving people doses of that smile, looking people in the eye and giving them a great smile is a huge tool in your nonverbal tool belt to evoke that charisma that we're talking about. I can make this very easy for you. Please do. Uh, make, and uh, make it very easy for everyone listening. If you realize that you're that much more attractive when you're smiling, you know that you're going to be engaging in the motions that are going to make you more attractive, more magnetic, more charismatic, then why wouldn't you be smiling if you have to go to any social engagement? Seems like the smart choice. And see, this is what this and this makes it easy. And so people are like, wow, you guys are so smiley. It's an easy choice to make. Why would I do anything else when I understand the what I have to gain in this situation? Now, I understand that every day presents new challenges and, and a lot of things happen. And sometimes life gets heavy and doesn't go in the directions that you want it to. <laughs> However, you can still fight it or find those times where, well, I have this thing, I have this meeting. This is where you turn it on and you have to do your best because. Well, we were on Violet's show and we talked about this exact thing. Yes, there are moments where you are pushed to your limit. Emotionally, you are spent, you are pessimistic, you are frustrated with life. And the simplest thing you could do <laughs> for yourself to put yourself in a better place is to move your body, to exercise, to get good chemicals flowing again in your you, brain. You have to. Physical activity sparks your body to create the chemicals necessary to fight that negative mood. And a lot of our clients will work out before going out 
on any of our field night activities because it puts you in that mental state of feeling good. Your body got the juices flowing, as we say, and all of a sudden you're going to find the conversation is a lot easier. It is a lot easier for you to smile at people. Now, one of the favorite things that we challenge all listeners to do and, and we challenge all of our program participants to do is to start cheersing and high-fiving people. To really point this out, to make this clear, that this clear signal of enthusiasm, right? To high-five someone. You have to be pretty darn enthusiastic. To cheer someone you don't know, you have to be pretty darn enthusiastic. And of course, if you've never done it before, you're like, well, oh, this isn't gonna go well. I don't know this person. Why would I come over and, and show them this enthusiasm? I have no reason to be enthused. And all those thoughts that creep in your head. And what you will find going back to this idea that these emotions are contagious is after a couple high fives and a couple cheers, your mood is lifted. That's the power of enthusiasm. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You add some energy to the other person's evening, smiling, cheersing them. Oh, I don't know why this guy cheers me, but I felt good. I felt good in the moment receiving a cheers. Oh, I don't know why this person high five me, but it felt good to receive a high five. You've cheered them up and you've got that boost of enthusiasm. And by the end of the night, a lot of our clients go, why the hell wasn't I doing this before? This is such an easy way to convey that charismatic enthusiasm. Now, I, I'm sure there are people who heard what you had just said and their first thought was, I can't go to a bar and cheers everybody. Did you tell anyone to cheers everyone in the room? No. No, cheers some people. There's people around you. That is it. And you will be surprised with just those that simple action does and the message that it sends. And AJ was talking about sending some optimism, but you're also showing an act of acknowledgement, which allows those around you to feel good about themselves. Why? Because it allows them to know that you are in this room, they're in this room, and it is a shared space, and it will be shared commonly with optimism. That's it from us, 2020. Stay safe, and we'll see you in 2021. This week, we want to give a huge shout-out to a longtime listener, Mick, who informed Johnny this week that him and his wife are expecting. Thank you for all the support over the years, Mick, and our team here at AOC is incredibly excited for you. Congratulations. What an epic way to end 2020. I have to say, Johnny, we had a lot of great guests as well as some fun on Toolbox episodes. I'm excited for what next year has in store for us. Before we go, could you give us and the entire Art of Charm team a huge favor? Could you head on over to iTunes or your favorite podcast app and rate this show? It really means the world to us, and it's allowed us to have on such phenomenal guests like the ones featured in this episode. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Until next week, I'm Johnny. And I'm AJ. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.